Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Thank you guys so much for being here today. Uh, you made it out in, you know, the 17th blizzard of this Denver snow season. I'm sorry about that. You know, I always like tell people like, oh yeah, it snows, and then three days later it's 70 degrees, and that's happened like once over the past three months, and the rest of them have just been these miserable things. So thank you so much for being here. Hey, and thank you for joining us on our first Sunday of Lent. Now, uh, you'll notice if you look around that we're not like a big sort of like, you know, pomp and circumstance kind of high church. Uh, we meet in a movie theater. Your floors or your feet might be sticking to the floor right now, right? Uh, we're pretty low key. I, I'm wearing a hoodie currently, right? It'd be difficult for me to like take some sort of like, you know, like I can't imagine lighting like incense right now in my hoodie. Like that's a strange thing. So you might be asking, like, why in the world would a church like this celebrate Lent? Uh, man, it has been a huge and powerful thing in in my life and in the life of our church over the past few years since we started three years ago. Um, it's a season that we celebrate every year where we sort of like take a step back from our normal sort of patterns of life and uh, actually uh, try to sort of live on less. In fact, this year we're calling our Lent series Less is More. What that means is we're sort of like giving up something to get more of Jesus. And as a part of that, you'll notice our gathering liturgy changes. Liturgy is just a fancy word for uh, sort of order of worship that we do. So our liturgy changes during this time. Each Sunday we're going to be starting off with a psalm of lament. Uh, we're going to be going through the book of Hosea, and then we're also going to be doing some really, really cool prayer things that you probably already heard about or saw. You can write your uh, prayers over here on this little board and uh, at, during the gathering at any time you can write your prayers right over there and then at the end of the gathering we ask you to just grab one you don't have to write one to take one this is not the you know take a penny leave a penny kind of situation like uh, you can grab somebody else's prayer off of that board and be praying through it through the week so uh, thank you so much for joining us we're jumping into the book of Hosea this uh, Sunday and it's it's going to get funky up in here cash warned you right uh, now you have fully known how many times like, can you count on your hand how many times you've heard the word whoredom in church? Or even maybe period, but uh, definitely in church, right? Like, not a ton. And uh, there you, you're, you're three up right now if you're counting, right? Like, if you're like me, then that number is totaling three. We here at Dwell Church uh, love Scripture. We feel like it gives us a truer picture of the world than very often our eyes do. Uh, a better picture, an understanding of reality and the way that God made the world than we typically find from other sources. And so uh, we believe that all of it is useful and uh, meant for our good and for our, our learning and for our growing and understanding who Christ is and who we are in relation to him. And so uh, Hosea is no exception to that. Hosea begins around the year 740 B.C., and uh, it probably spans across his life. I don't think he sat down and wrote this book in like one sitting. These are probably different teachings that God gave to him to, uh, to share with the people of Israel over the course of his life. Uh, it's truly one of the worst periods ever to be an Israelite. And I know you guys are like, no way. We went through judges as a church. And if you're visiting, this is like your first time, you're like, man, what is wrong with this church? Like, they are picking the worst parts of the Bible, right? Uh, so we did Judges not all that long ago. And if you were here for that, and then you heard me say, like, this is one of the worst times to be an Israelite, you're like, man, this is bad news right here. Uh, some people actually call Hosea the deathbed prophet because he is essentially writing and speaking and living his life on the sort of edge of doom for the people of Israel. Uh, it is probably happening during his lifetime. 
that the Assyrians would come in and invade Israel. And truly, until like, you know, 1960-something, this might have been the last time that uh, the Israel actually had its own sovereign state with its own rulership. This is the last time that Israel had a king, the king that he, you know, might be referencing to even today. This is the very, very last time. They're about to be taken out over by uh, the Assyrians, Tiglath-Pileser III, if you will. And uh, they're truly just right, right on the precipice of this. And Hosea is looking around at his fellow Israelites. He's looking around at the wickedness that's going on. He's looking around at the things that they've gotten into. And God calls him to speak up, but not just with uh, his words, but actually with his life. Now, uh, we're calling this uh, series Hosea Known, Loved, and Forgiven. And the question that I'm going to pose to you each and every week throughout this entire series is how you would live any differently if you knew that you were known completely, if you knew that you were loved completely and if you knew that you were forgiven completely. And I believe that the message of Hosea in its simplest form is that that is completely true of the Israelites, even when they wander away. And it is completely 100 percent true of you. And because of that, we ought to live differently in light of that. Uh, Hosea, as I already said, is a very appropriate book for Lent. Uh, there is a lot of lamenting that goes on, and uh, in a world that is filled with things that distract us from terrible things that are happening, right? Like we're constantly looking to like, oh, I want to shut that down. Or a world that is filled with doom scrolling, where we sort of hyper-focus on the terrible things that are happening in the world. Hosea paints a picture of a simultaneously more screwed up world than we can imagine, and a more hopeful one than we probably would allow ourselves to believe in. Which, man, is just some salve for my soul to even say that that's possible out there today. It's also a good time, an important time for us to, to read this, because in a world where we are sharply divided on what love even means, Hosea steps in and gives us a better picture of love than we could ever possibly imagine or conceive of for ourselves. It gives us a picture of God's love, which is so much better than the sort of like Hollywood social media pictures that we've been given of love. It's so much better than the experience that we've had of love, right? Like, uh, loving other human beings is a difficult and a painful experience, and it takes a lot out of us, and it lets us down and, and breaks our hearts. This is not the case with the love that God gives and shows us through the story of Hosea. The central storyline, at least for the, the beginning part of Hosea, is that he marries a prostitute. Maybe, we think. Uh, you saw that word whoredom thrown out there, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. But uh, basically, God tells him to marry this prostitute. Then she's unfaithful, and he takes her back. And this is all to symbolize the relationship between God and the people of Israel. The people of Israel are Hosea's wife that he marries, and uh, God is sort of represented here by Hosea. This is all uh, symbolizing this relationship, and it might be the world's oldest act of like performance art. Now, have you guys heard of performance art, right? Like, you could have, like, this, like, pop-up street thing, like some guy living in a cage or something like that to show that we're all caged. I mean, it's all gets kind of abstract. I actually looked up some uh, in prepping for this. There was a guy who spent two weeks in a museum in France living inside of a bear carcass. He literally, like, bought some, brought some books in there and some water and some, like, snacks and stuff, and this was just uh, an art piece. They had, like, a little video uh, right on his face, and he just sat there for two full weeks. There's also one who a lady spent 736 hours, I don't know why that specific amount, uh, sitting at a table in a museum, and uh, people would come in, and they would sit at a chair across from her, and she would just, like, stare at them, like, solid for 736 hours. I don't even know what it was meant to represent. I also read that uh, Tilda Swinton, if you know her, the actress, sometimes she'll go in the Museum of Modern Art in New York in the MoMA and she'll like they'll put her in a glass box and she'll take a nap. 
So you're like standing right next to like this $2 million painting that you're trying to understand what it even means. And then there's Tilda Swinton just napping away right there in the MoMA. Um, I looked up a bunch of other ones and uh, they are all sexual. So uh, maybe I should have jumped into like, you know, that since it is Hosea. But man, people think performance art and they're like, I'm going to do something really weird. It's going to make you uncomfortable and um, do something in public. Probably shouldn't be in public. Anyway, <clears throat> not going to dwell too, too much on that. That's kind of actually what's happening here. Most of the other prophets speak truth, but Hosea was actually showing it with his life. He's doing something that goes way beyond the sort of bounds of just like getting up and preaching a sermon. He's actually living his life, naming his children, choosing and marrying his wife, being faithful to his wife as a way to show Israel something. He's performing something. He is living out loud the message that God wants uh, the people of Israel to see. And what's interesting is there's something that the Bible affirms over and over again, and that is that the world moves and changes through story. That in fact, more so than just sort of like, you know, abstract facts kind of hanging out there or, or anything else like, you know, some sort of initiative or something like that. Truly, truly, it is stories that move and change the world. I mean, the way that God primarily sort of like enacts his will on the earth is firmly and deeply embedded in story. That's why we even have the Bible. And if you look at it, it is far overweighted by telling the story of the people of God much more than just sort of like didactic teachings. You know, I feel like uh, people tend to like boil the Bible down. They're like, ah, it's just a list of do's and don'ts. But if you've ever read the Bible, that is far, far, far from the truth. Even in the moments when there are like these do's and don't kind of passages, they're deeply embedded in real people's lives and actual stories that God is laying out throughout all of history. And it all began with God speaking the word in, or speaking the world into existence. We tend to think of history as just sort of like this chain of events, these things that are happening. But I think really a more appropriate way to understand it would be a story that God is telling that is unfolding constantly around us. And this story of Hosea is a story that happened to real people and in between real people uh, thousands of years ago. And now it is a story that we are able to share as the people of God to see what it might tell us about ourselves and to see what it might tell us about God. So without any further ado... Let's jump in. I think this is why the story speaks or why our story starts this way in verse two. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, uh, the next two chapters, the next two Sundays, really, are going to be super important. We're going to talk a lot about Hosea's wife and his relationship with his wife. So we're not going to spend too, too much time on that today, other than just this little side note that it gives us. Uh, and it really just like blazes right through it, right? It's just two sentences. Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. Now, um, <clears throat> it says uh, like whoredom like three or four times. We're probably going to get pulled off our YouTube channel for this, I imagine, or at least like flagged, you know, there's going to be like like one of those little buttons, oh, are you old enough to watch this video? Because uh, we're throwing it out there, and it's going to get even worse, folks. Next couple of weeks, we're going to get a little bit raucous, okay? Um, now, it could mean, like, harlotry or prostitution, something like that. Like, it could be sort of the most obvious reading and understanding of it. Uh, but it maybe, maybe doesn't necessarily have to mean that in our text today. Now, you'll see later where uh, that probably could be, like, a, a reasonable reading. And, in fact, the traditional view, so the view held by Christians for thousands of years as they've been reading scripture has typically been that here uh, 
Hosea goes out and marries someone who is a like professional prostitute, some sort of like sex worker or something like that. But the context here actually could just as easily point to saying, hey, marry someone who is a part of this entire system of whoredom. And as you can see, as you're going to see throughout the book of uh, Hosea, that is the metaphor, the central metaphor that God is using for his people, Israel. Because here he is, he has entered into a covenant relationship, very similar to a marriage with them. And they are people who are constantly running away. They are cheating on him. They are adulterous to him. They are whoring around on him. And so what this could actually be meaning is not necessarily that she is taking someone who is from, or he is marrying someone who is a current prostitute, but it could mean he's marrying into this entire system, this entire community of people, this nation of Israel, and marrying into all of their idolatry, all of their wayward all of the ways that they run away from God. And the point here is that he marries a woman, knowing that it'll be painful for him, knowing that God has called him to do it, something hard so that it can teach him something and teach his neighbor something, and he walks right into it. And then... They have three kids, which is actually what we're going to focus on today. They have three kids. Now, you notice something different. If you've been around Dwell for a while, we typically read all of the scripture and then I sort of preach off of it. Uh, during this Hosea series, we're going to read like a little bit of an excerpt and then I'm going to sort of like cover as much of the uh, chapter or section as I can. And so uh, now let's move on to verse four. So they have three kids and all of their three kids stand as a lesson for the people of Israel as well. Verse four says, and the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. Cute baby name, I guess. For in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house in Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now, uh, I checked the roster before I started preaching because I didn't want to say anything offensive. We don't have any Jezreels at our church, which is probably a good thing. Um, None of you guys have that name. None of us really have like all that. Or, or I feel like in modern America, we tend not to have that much significance over our names as they did in like ancient biblical times, right? Uh, I, my name is Josh. It's short for Joshua. Surprise, right there. Uh, my entire family, my all the children have the same initials, J, D, C. And uh, so that was kind of like most of the thought. We wanted like biblical names, you know, like uh, probably drifted into the realm of like boring white people names at the same time, you know. My brother's name is Jeremy. Maya, which is a little bit interesting. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, I have my family name, which is my middle name, which is Daryl, uh, spelled just in no way, shape, or form the way that you would think it would be spelled. Uh, surprisingly, more L's, more R's, and more E's than you would expect in such a word. Uh, somehow, we sort of hit the trifecta right there. And all of that was like based off of that's my grandfather, and so he sort of like carried it around and you know, it's weird. Names, I think, the way that we think about them are like primarily to say, hey, we're conveying something to this individual about the person that they need to grow up to be. At least that's how I've always taken it to, to mean. And whenever I read the stories of Joshua in the Bible, I sort of like take sort of special ownership and, and love over those stories, you know. But here, God is saying, hey, name your kid Jezreel so that we can say something to the people of Israel, which is a, a bizarre thing. So already God has asked this guy to marry, possibly a prostitute, and now he's asking him to be very specific in naming his uh, children. Jezreel was actually a reference to a specific place. We have to do a little bit of a deep dive on what Jezreel is to be able to understand. Now, the people of Israel, bear in mind throughout this entire deep dive, the people of Israel knew all of this, okay? They were coming into, this was like common knowledge that all of them carried around. Jezreel is a little valley in Israel that was commonly a host to very bloody battles. 
And this is a reference uh, to the story of Jehu and Jezreel, and it's a specific moment in recent Israelite uh, history. So in order to understand that, we have to go a little bit further back. We have to go back to King Ahab. Now, you've probably heard the name Ahab uh, before. It is the name of the captain in uh, the greatest American novel, Moby Dick, and also uh, one of the most wicked kings in all of the history of Israel. Okay, so just a few generations before this guy Ahab was sitting on the throne, he was a wicked and evil king. And one of the worst things about him is that he was just spineless. And so uh, he brings on this woman who is from another country, and her name is Jezebel. Jezebel, you might have heard that name as well. And he and Jezebel together reintroduced Baal worship to the people of God. They had been following God, and instead uh, they brought back the false god Baal, and they were into all kinds of just terrible and awful stuff. Now, I'm going to do, like I said, just far deeper into this than may seem necessary, but I want you to paint a picture of what uh, Hosea is referencing by naming his child Jezreel. So they were like this evil power couple in all the history of the people of God, and they were like uh, worshiping false gods. They even rebuilt the city of Jericho, which if you remember, Joshua marched around seven times, and then it fell down and crushed all the wicked people within. And then Joshua looks over at the, ter- at the desolation of Jericho, and he says, this city will never be rebuilt. It should never be rebuilt. Ahab and Jezebel actually rebuild that city, so that's a big deal. Um, Jezebel even began hunting down and killing the priests and servants of the Lord. She even made Elijah have to run for his life because she was seeking to murder anyone who was actively serving the Lord. Ahab, interestingly enough, gets a mixed sort of depiction uh, and a very like full character in Kings 1, right? Like sometimes he's, or First Kings, he's like a, a, a lamentable figure sometimes, a, a sort of apathetic figure, and then other times just outright evil. But oddly enough, Jezebel is one of the very few characters in the entire Bible who gets a just full-on evil picture. She gets no characterization at all. We don't get any sort of origin story of just like, oh, well, that's why she did what she did. No, she was just a really, really, really bad person. Ahab dies in battle, and for a while there was confusion and chaos over who would be king, and eventually Jehu is anointed king. But he still had to clean up the mess left by Ahab and his followers. So he goes to... Jezreel. And in Jezreel, they had built one of like truly the biggest fortresses in the ancient world. Uh, you can actually pull up uh, images online. They've done a ton of digs over there and found this building. It has like this three or four story uh, big tower that's connected to it. And Jezebel was hiding out in uh, Jezreel. And so uh, Jehu, as the anointed king, marches up with his army up to Jezreel. And he looks up and he shouts up at the people of, uh, of Jezreel who are hanging out there who are guarding Jezebel. And she looks out from her tower and the, the scripture actually says she sort of painted her face, uh, which is kind of a cutesy way since we're already in the NC-17. She was like making herself available to Jehu, right? Like she was using her whatever powers and wiles that she had. And Jehu calls up to the eunuchs who are like attending uh, her, her servants, and says, hey, if you throw her out the window, things will go better for you. And so they do. They throw her right out the window. She dies on the valley of Jezreel and then they trample her in the horses or with their horses Jehu and his army does not even go back and bury her body because they say that her blood should be mingled forevermore with the valley of Jezreel had enough yet there's more so Jehu is sitting in Jezreel now he's taken it over and he says this is not enough I need to firmly establish my dominance over the people of Israel and over everyone and calls for 70 leaders who are faithful to Ahab to be beheaded and for them to send their heads in baskets to him at Jezreel where he is now sitting and holding court 
And Hosea is told to name his child Jezreel. Now, how strange is that? A descendant of Jehu is still sitting on the throne, right? So Jehu's grandson is now the king of Israel. And Hosea is like, all right, so we need to name Israel Jezreel. Or we need to name our child Jezreel. It's astonishing. And if you think about it, so this current king is a, grand, is a descendant of Jehu, right? So naming your child Jezreel is kind of like this weird sort of mix of like national pride and national shame. I mean, we got rid of Ahab and Jezebel, but at the same time, it was bloody and it was disgusting. And it was not at all honoring to God. Jehu even himself turned out to be kind of a mixed bag kind of king. Uh, more evil than good, I would think, at the end of the day. Naming your child Jezreel would be like some sort of equivalent to naming your child Hiroshima. Right, like here's this terrible and awful moment in the history of humankind, and sure, it put an end to World War II, right? So like, you know, in some ways it may have ended something that could have been a lot worse. It put an end to ending more lives, but at what terrible and awful cost? Like we look back on that moment now, I think with just, at least I do, with like mixed feelings of like, and it ushered in this entire new age of nuclear warfare, and now it feels like we're like living under threat of it again. I mean, it's just, it's baffling and disgusting, but I guess maybe sort of necessary. I don't really know. But either way, can you imagine, you know, you go to like some sort of like, you know, baby shower, and you're like, what are you going to name the kid? And they're like, Hiroshima. And I'm like, well, I guess it sounds nice. I, I don't know, right? Like, that's, that's kind of dark. That's exactly what Hosea was called to do here. Let's look at the text again. It says, And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. God here is letting his people know. Through Hosea, naming his child Jezreel, he's letting his people know another Jezreel is coming. You know how you stand there in your arrogance and your pride over having conquered Ahab and Jezebel through this bloody and disgusting war? Well, man, you don't even know what is coming for you. I am bringing another Jezreel on the house of Israel. And in that day, I will break the bow of Israel. Verse 6 says, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, or said to him, call her name no mercy, for I will have no mercy on the, or no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by horses or by uh, horsemen or by war. Sorry. This one feels a little bit more like a WWE kind of wrestler name, you know, like naming your child No Mercy sounds like something that would have happened back in that era when that was like super popular. Uh, and I think this could connect to any number of really like touch points in Israel's history. God speaks very, very frequently about mercy. And so to name a child No Mercy seems like in direct conflict, like conflict with who God is and how he reacts to uh, the people of Israel. In fact, in Exodus chapter 33, Moses actually asks if he can see God and God doesn't appear to him, at least not uh, visually, but he very cryptically says this in verse uh, 33 or chapter 33, verse 17. He says, and the Lord said to Moses, the very thing that I you have spoken I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name 
Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And understanding who God is, Moses is like, God, I want to know who you are. I want to actually see you. God says, the most important thing about me is that I will be gracious to who I will be gracious to and I will show mercy to who I will show mercy to, implying there that he's going to do it to Moses and his descendants. And then he came down from the mountain after this after this little scene he came down from the mountain they built the ark of the covenant where they stored the ten commandments it was marched in front of the army of israel it was uh, the symbol of their national sovereignty it was a symbol of international pride and right there sitting in between these two golden arced statues sitting in a place where there is nothing represented there's no idol because israel never had like a, a sort of physical representation of god but sitting between these two these two cherubim these two angels sitting on top of the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. It is called the mercy seat. It being the place where symbolically God was to come and sit and the people were go to go to him to seek mercy, to receive mercy from their God. All of this, sort of the founding of the covenant. All this at the beginning of the people of Israel. Now, generations later, they're living in the promised land. They're following after wickedness. And God says, you need to name your child no mercy. Because I will no longer have mercy on the people of Israel. Verse 8. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. So we go from Hiroshima to no mercy to not my people. We can assume safely that these kids did not make friends all that easily. Not my people might actually be the most scathing name of all. Because from the Abraham to Moses to David, God had called the Israelites his People, But now he's looking at them and saying, you are not my people. You are no longer my people. So you have to ask ourselves, why? Why? Why these three names? Why are these so significant? Now, remember what I said about the timing of this book. Israel is in shambles. Assyria is knocking at the door. Some have even called Hosea the deathbed prophet because he is there, uh, doom and gloom. He knows that the end of Israel as they know it is coming, and he is trying to let his people know. God paints one last picture for them. And he tries to do it in the most spectacular and audacious way. He takes this guy, Hosea, who's a prophet in Israel, probably well-respected and known in Israel, names his three kids, Jezreel, no mercy, no longer my people. And this godly man marries a prostitute, has these three kids, and he shows this to the people of Israel, and he gives them one last chance to turn back. He gives them one last chance for them to wake up. And spoiler alert, they do not. They continue on in their wicked ways in a very, very short time from now. The nation of Israel, God's chosen people, the people that marched into the promised land against vastly superior armies, against people that were bigger and stronger than they are, the people that walked in with horns and loud noises and destroyed strongholds, the people who walked over 
dry land crossing the Jordan, the people who were able to just sort of march into an already occupied and hotly contested territory and take it over just because of their faith in God, now were about to be destroyed in a sort of irrevocable way. Now, there's all the background. And what we have to ask about this is something that uh, in our dwell group, actually, we ask every single week. Uh, we don't do any sort of like, you know, really intense, super deep dive, busting out six commentaries, kind of like understanding of the Bible. But instead, we ask ourselves two questions every week. What does this passage tell us about God? And what does this passage tell us about us? About God, this passage tells us that he does not take covenant breaking lightly. He does not take covenant breaking lightly. Covenant is a theme that goes throughout the entire Bible. We see it everywhere throughout the Bible, but this concept is especially prominent in understanding Hosea. Now, covenant, in sort of like the loosest sense that you can possibly sort of say it is, is basically just an agreement. You know, it could be compared to a contract. If you've lived in a place that has like an HOA, you might have an HOA covenant, which I think is just far too weighty of language for like, hey, don't park broken cars on the street, right? Like, I don't really understand that. Uh, in the biblical sense, it more so means a, a sort of agreement between two parties who are willing to work towards a common goal and hold each other to certain promises. And so what's really special and unique here that you don't see anywhere else in the ancient Near East or any other sort of really religion that I'm aware of at all is that God enters into a covenant with his people. Now, usually for a covenant to work, both parties have to have some sort of like equal standing or the lesser party has to bring in a lot of extra authority and power, maybe somebody else to back up the covenant. But here we see God of the entire universe sitting down and making a covenant with his people, Israel. This covenant was designed to bind the two members of the covenant to each other so that they might work towards a certain goal. You can think of it sort of like a marriage covenant, right? So the goal is to sort of like build this happy and healthy marriage. The goal is to like, you know, maybe have a family or, or sort of mutually work together to sort of achieve certain goals in life. And the covenant is agreement between those two people to say, hey, we are going to bind each other to these things, the things that we say in the vows. We are going to hold each other accountable to those things so that we might achieve this uh, goal together of living our lives together. Both parties sort of bought in together to be able to sort of sign and agree to this covenant. If you're interested in learning more about covenants, I would highly, highly, highly recommend doing just a, a very light deep dive into this. There's a website called BibleProject.com. You can find some really, really great resources. Just BibleProject.com and look up the word covenant. Uh, there's some wonderful stuff on there. God made many important covenants with his people, but I think the most important one, at least as it pertains to Hosea, was this one. You can find this in Exodus chapter 19, and today we're going to read 3 through 8. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called out to him of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the people, to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, here's the covenant. If you will indeed obey my, obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord.
Then God gave them the Ten Commandments to show them how to live. Fairly simple stuff when you really think about it. Don't kill each other. Don't steal. Have no other gods before me. Don't make up gods and then follow them. Take a day off once a week. And he also gave them guidelines for offering sacrifices, for making up when they failed to achieve the covenant. He actually gave them. He said, hey, uh, we're setting up this covenant. All you have to do is obey my commands. Oh, and when you don't obey my commands, here's what you can do to, like, you know, restore yourself to the covenant. Oh, and when that doesn't happen, you can actually do this, and that will restore yourself back. He gave them all of these inroads. It's really, really, really a terrible contract if you're God's side, right? He's like, hey, I'm bringing every single thing to the table. I'm going to make you my treasured possession. I'm going to make you a great nation, a kingdom of priests who are connected with me who are following me who i am serving to accomplish my will throughout all of history all you have to do is obey my commands and even if you don't you can still sort of make up for that afterwards then he goes on to show it to them right gives them food while they're wandering in the desert allows them to cross the red sea on dry land while the, the egyptians and pharaoh all drown behind them and so naturally the people of israel we see here in verse 8 it says all that the lord has spoken we will do Now, this is the great, 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 great grandfather of Hosea, probably sitting here in these people. He's saying, yes, this is what we want to do. We've seen God do great things for us. The God of the universe is willing to enter into covenant with us. We are going to do it. Let's sign up. All of this we will do. And what ends up happening is that God faultlessly keeps up his end of the bargain here. He said, you I will love. You will be my special and treasured possession among all the earth. And all you have to do is not break the covenant and obey my voice. And the Israelites say, yes, we will do that. And then 10 minutes later, they build a golden calf and start worshiping that as God. That leads them to wandering in the desert. It leads them to finally getting into the promised land. And then they set up this period of judges, which is this completely bonkers time of actively serving God and actively working against him. They find gods of the people that were in the promised land already, like Baal and Molech. And they start actually offering up their children in sacrifice, burning them to death to please these false gods. They start murdering each other, fighting over simple and small things like land and titles. There's unnecessary bloodshed. There's greed. There's collecting 70 of your fellow Israelites' heads in baskets just to show your strength to your enemies. And they'd gotten so far from what God had called them to be. Like, is it not so bizarre You know, you hear a lot of, uh, I think, politicians today talk about the Constitution, you know, is this like moment when Americans sat down and they signed something and they said, hey, this is who we're going to be. And now we're like holding each other accountable to this. Like this is a very sort of similar situation. Like their forefathers agreed to this covenant with the God of the universe. And then just a few short days, a few short generations later, now all of a sudden they're worshiping false gods and murdering each other. It's disgusting. So God, after giving them numerous, innumerable times to turn back and to actually repent, to actually sacrifice and show him that they believe that he is God of the universe and he's going to uphold his covenant. God gave them millions of chances to do that. And now finally, in Hosea, he is saying with his children, hey, you Jezreel. 
Hey, no mercy. Hey, not my people. I am done. You have broken my covenant too many times, thousands of times, and I have been keeping it completely and graciously. I have been faultless on keeping up my end. I have made of you a great nation. I have turned you into a kingdom of priests so that you might be a blessing to the other nations of the planet. But instead, you have consistently turned your back on me. You have consistently rejected my good and righteous rule. You have consistently rejected obeying my commands. What this passage tells us about God is that he is completely justified here in his anger. And this tells us that God is a zealous and just covenant keeper who does not tolerate humanity's abuse, neglect, and rejection of it. And this is a dark picture of God, I think, uh, for a lot of us, or at least it might feel that way at the outset. You know, uh, we kind of have a complex relationship with the way that we like present God uh, to and about ourselves. Uh, and, and really, we see this throughout Scripture that it's, it is this sort of like it's difficult for us to hold in our, in our small human minds. And we don't really have like a very popularized version of this God who loves justice, who does what is right, because we know just how often we are unjust. But you know, if you've ever actually been the victim of something, that is when you are looking for that God of justice. If you've ever actually suffered unjust harm to yourself, you're not crying out for like, hey, let's just have a little bit more understanding for each other. No, you are standing up and saying, hey, this is wrong and there needs to be someone in control to actually set it right. We have to understand that that is just as much a part of God's nature as his mercy is. What does this tell us about ourselves? I think that if we fit somewhere in this story, we are the ones who are in need of this radical wake-up call. I mean, we're in the middle of this like crazy Ukraine situation right now. I'm sure you guys have like seen things about it on the news, and it's this crazy situation. We're all we're all like sitting over here across the world, feeling completely and utterly powerless to be able to do anything, shouting at our television screens, "This is not right. This should not be happening. This cannot be allowed to go on. How can like one man leading one nation just willy-nilly walk into another one? How can someone start a war with death and thousands?" Thousands of people fleeing from their homes and people being uh, hurt and harmed. How can this be allowed to happen? And it feels like there's nothing that we can do to see or to make Putin and whoever see right from wrong, right? We're sitting here on the other side and we're like, hey, this is wrong. Someone needs to step in and fix it. And the most painful thing, I think, is just sort of the the fruitless outrage at all of this right like isn't it just frustrating within your own soul you see something that's terribly wrong you think to yourself man if i could just sit down and talk with them for like 10 minutes maybe we could sort this thing out and yet we have nothing that we can do i think this is kind of the sentiment that god is expressing here in hosea that sort of sense of Hey, wake up. Stop this. This is wrong. It is not right. Is exactly what God is saying through the names of these three children. He's saying, wake up, Israel. Wake 
up. You have broken my covenant. And I believe he's saying the exact same thing to us today. He is looking at you and I. We didn't march into Ukraine. We're not leaders of these governments. We haven't. We weren't, you know, taking part in Jezreel or anything like that. But I think the message from all of this today is that that is the place where we fit. We don't get to sit as sort of like the just and right arbiter of what is right and wrong. We don't get to sit in this place where we say, hey, I have faultlessly kept this covenant with God, and as a result, I have rights and I have things that I deserve. No, we are the people of Israel who should be able to read this story and have a radical awakening from God to our own brokenness to our own sin to our own fault that we bring to the table i believe that god today is saying to us stop this please you are hurting one another do you not see the pain that you cause your spouse when you treat them that way do you not see the hurt that your small lies cost Do you not see that there are people around you who are suffering that you are ignoring? Do you not see that you cannot treat a person like an object? You cannot treat them as if they are less than you because they are image bearers of God. They have a soul. Do you not see that our own decadence and greed is built on harming other people? God is saying, stop, please. You are hurting yourself. Your greed is all-consuming. Your jealousy is going to eat you alive from the inside out. The pride that you feel is feeding into this feedback loop of your own fear that you might be find out, found out that forces you then to give more or to show more pride. The lust inside of you is a growing dissatisfaction that is going to make you dissatisfied with anything healthy and true and beautiful. And all of this is simply sin. Fundamentally, at its core, it is breaking a covenant with the God of the universe who gave us the right and true way to live. Fundamentally, at its core, it is missing out on living the way that God intended us to live. And because of that, it is no different than what the people of Israel were doing. truth is that each and every time that we sin, even something small and seemingly insignificant, even something we write off for ourselves because we had a bad day or something happened to us, each and every one of them separate us from the God of the universe who showed us a right way to live. They drive a wedge in that covenant. They break, they break that covenant that he made with us. Think about it. You've probably sinned even this week. Maybe even today. If you think about it and it pops in your brain right now, man, it's probably that thing that is nagging you that is there for a good reason. And the reason why, no matter how much we try and shrug it off and move on with our lives, it sort of sticks with us, is because I believe it is a good and necessary thing to know and to be aware of our sin. That is exactly what Hosea was trying to make the people aware of here in the book of Hosea, and that is exactly what God, I believe, is making each and every one of us aware of right now. Because only a robust and difficult understanding of our sin can even begin to save us. 
This is the first step to understanding just how great and how powerful our need is for a Savior. Because only in reconciling with the idea of just how much we have failed and wronged the God of the universe can we even begin to see our need for a Savior. If we continue to walk around minimizing our own sin, if we continue trying to walk around trying to ignore sin that exists in our own lives, then we'll never actually see just how greatly we need God. Can't you say, especially if you would not necessarily call yourself a follower of Jesus, or maybe you've been calling yourself a follower of Jesus, but never really like thought through this before. And I'm asking you to take stock Take stock, understand, try and wrap your mind around just how great and powerful your sin is and how much it separates you from a good and loving and perfect God. This passage tells us something else special about God. Because after all the sin, after all the wife of whoredom and Jezreel and no mercy and not my people, the passage still concludes like this. As dark and as twisted as this entire tale has been, this is the crazy and insane way that this passage ends. Are you ready for this in verse 10? It says, Yet the number of children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Even as bleak as this performance art was, as rightfully doom and gloom as Hosea might have been, knowing that the Assyrians are right on the doorstep, Hosea was doom and gloom, and as, as, as true as all of that is, he cannot even help but in this section with a message of hope. I hope that he would never even see answered, but I believe that we see answered in Jesus. The promise that the descendants of Israel would number the sand or would be as the number of the sand on the sea is given to Abraham. And we see that found uh, throughout the Old Testament as the sort of consistent future vision of the people of God that one day they would be so numerous they wouldn't even be able to count. And then with the coming of Jesus, we see that actually beginning to take or to come to fruition. He promises here that the children, in verse 11, the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. What he doesn't even see there is that something that would be inconceivable in his time. Mind you, Judah and Israel were separate kingdoms at this time. Assyria takes over Israel. Judah gets taken over a little bit later. Something that would have been inconceivable in his time, that Judah and Israel should be reunited together, it not only happens, but also happens with the rest of the planet. That one day Jesus would reconcile all people to himself. That people from every nation, tribe, and tongue would come to know Jesus. This is the hope that Hosea is unknowingly painting a picture for. And they shall appoint for themselves one head, Jesus that in each and every believer's heart, every follower of Jesus who buys into this covenant relationship under the new covenant that Christ ushers in with his death might appoint for themselves head of this kingdom of God as Jesus, suffering servant, the one who died for them, the one who made this covenant possible. 
because the people of Israel failed so many times at the old covenant, Jesus came in and made a new covenant where it does not depend on our righteousness at all. But instead, he says, I'll hold up your end of the bargain. I'll be your representative for your side of the king or your side of the covenant. And as a result, you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, appoint for ourselves one head of the people of God. I love this last sentence. Because it's kind of beautiful, poetic, eschatological, if you will, nonsense, right? Doesn't make any sense in Hosea's context. I don't think we have any context to understand what it means in ours. But I believe that one day... Somehow, we will. He says that these people of God, united against all odds, these people of God with God, with Jesus as their king, standing in right relationship with the God of the universe, these people shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel, that in that day they shall go up from the land, they shall rise up, they shall ascend, is probably a better literal translation of that. For that day... The day of Jezreel, which is that day of great national shame, that day of great destruction, that day uh, that for generations afterwards was known for blood and death, shall hitherto be remembered as a day of deliverance. Great shall be the day of Jezreel, that in experiencing so great a death, we might be able to see such a life. He's speaking directly to people who were just generations removed from that moment when Jehu sort of reconquered Jezreel. And he's saying, as awful as that is, we will look back on that one day because of how wonderful things have turned out for us. We will say that was a great day because it showed us how dark things could get so that we might better appreciate the life. There is no resurrection without first having a death. And so Hosea concludes this passage by saying, great shall be the day of Jezreel. And today, if this prophecy from thousands of years ago has any meaning for our lives, I believe that the choice is put before each and every one of us today. The message of Hosea is that based on our own behavior, we are oath breakers, we are covenant breakers, we are idolaters, we are sinners, we are people who are working hard to get far away from God and separate ourselves from his good and righteous love. But the truth is, what Hosea is foretelling, maybe even unwittingly here, is that Jesus would step in and make a way for us to be actually restored to this covenant, that we might be called children of God through him. No longer, no longer is it based on how much righteousness we can bring to the table. No longer is it based on how good we can be because we know that we would fail. But it is instead based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
that actually a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of David would come down. He would come down as both God and man. Simultaneously, the only person who could actually uphold one side of the covenant, right? He was a good Israelite who never sinned, who lived a perfectly righteous life. He is the man that Hosea is hoping and dreaming towards. He is the man that Hosea probably even wants to be in some way as being the righteous person in Israel, standing up for the side of God. He is able to uphold that side of the covenant and then he takes the death and the punishment that we actually deserve so that in the greatest exchange in all of history we might be able to take his standing in the covenant we might be able to take on his righteousness for ourselves so that we might be a person in good standing in relationship with God in upholding this covenant where he has made this promise to us Now, I know all of that is very abstract, very theological, very sort of pie in the sky, but I believe that it is the truth. I believe that it is the message that God has for each and every one of us today. That we can do nothing to do, we can do nothing to actually bring anything to the table. We can't save ourselves from our own sin. We can barely even make ourselves to understand and be aware of our own sin. And all that that ought to point us to do and to be is to place our full assurance, our full hope of eternal life, our full hope of life at all at the feet of Jesus. To look to him and say, I can't do this on my own. I can't actually make this covenant happen. I can't uphold this. I can't actually obey this. God, my sin is so great. It is so powerful that I cannot do anything to fix or to resolve it. And Jesus takes that. No matter how great, no matter how nasty, no matter how dirty, no matter how awful, no matter how unforgivable the sin may actually feel, he takes that on himself. Takes it to the cross and exchanges it with his life. I'll ask you one more time. What would you do if you truly knew, truly understood, truly knew in the deepest part of yourself that you were loved completely because I believe that the life of Jesus shows that you are? What would you do if you knew that you were known completely? Because Jesus knows every single thing that you've ever done that's ever been done to you. And what would you do if you knew that you were forgiven completely of all of that? That you no longer have to carry it around. That you no longer have to let it burden you down. You no longer have to let it separate you from God. That you, right now, in this very moment, can be forgiven by the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.